Hi, I'm Frank Lavallo, host of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, we'd like to thank Visible Voice Books for sponsoring the Novel Conversations giveaway, which gives listeners a chance to win all eight classic novels featured in our fifth season. You can enter through our Novel Conversations Facebook page or tweet us at novel underscript converse, that's C-O-N-V-E-R-S, or head to our website blog, thefrontporchpeople.com backslash blog. Visible Voice Books is our local go-to for delving into our favorite books in a relaxed, inviting environment. And if you're not here in Cleveland, Ohio, you can always support Visible Voice Books by shopping online at visiblevoicebooks.com. Visible Voice Books. Without literature, life is hell. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This Novel Conversation is about Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. And I'll be joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick. Elizabeth, Phil, hello. Thanks so much for having us back. Thank you, Frank. Great to see you guys both again. All right, Phil, Elizabeth, let's turn to our novel. Today's book is Parnassus on Wheels. It's the story of a marvelous little man, small in stature, wiry as a cat, and yet with an Olympian personality, Roger Mifflin. He's part pixie, part sage, part noble savage, and all God's creature. With his traveling book wagon named Parnassus, he moves through the New England countryside of 1915 on an itinerant mission of enlightenment. Mifflin's delight in books and authors, if not publishers, is infectious with his singular philosophy and bright eyes. He comes to represent the heart and soul of the book world. So, Phil, was this the first time you read Parnassus on Wheels? Yes, it was. I enjoyed the book. Elizabeth, I know this was the first time you read it. How about for you? It's an easy read. It's a very light read, but I don't have a lot of time to devote to reading specifically for pleasure, so I like to choose a book that I'm really going to be enthralled with and really get lost in. And this, I didn't lose myself in it, but I mean, if you have more leisure time, maybe in the summer, and you can read it, it's easy to read without distraction around you. I know you do want to warn our readers out there to avoid the forward. Oh, absolutely. If you would pick up the foreword and look at this book, I don't think many people would go through with it. So the foreword is in no way a reflection on the book, and I suggest to everyone, maybe read it at the end. You know, Elizabeth, while I agree with you that it's a light read, for me, what makes it a book worth reading, well, actually, there's two things that make it a book worth reading for me, but it starts out as one story. You expect it to be, just as as I said and you said, a light read about an idyllic journey, a couple of people out on the road selling books. But with the changes that occur in this novel, it moves from a light journey story to an adventure story to a romance. For me, that made it very interesting and made me want to keep turning the pages to see where it was going to go next. And then, of course, the numerous references to authors and other books throughout this book had me running to my dictionaries, my bookcases, my author biographies, my histories of novels. I wanted to find out what these other books were, what they were about, what the references within the book meant, how they may or may not have related to the story we were reading within Parnassus on Wheels. So while I agree with you it's a light read, it's certainly a light read worth reading. Now let's talk about the main character, or at least what I consider to be the main character in this novel. Um, I don't really know that it's a character at all. 
So, Phil, for me, the main character in this novel really isn't a character at all. It's Parnassus. Do you want to tell me who or actually what Parnassus is? Well, Parnassus is a van pulled by a horse. It's a custom-made van that's filled with books on both sides. It's the center of the one character, Roger Mifflin. It's the center of his world while he's out in the countryside. His books are there. His tools of the trade are there. He lives inside, and Parnassus is made up of the wagon, the horse, the dog. It's all a package deal, which even in the book is how he sells it, as a package deal. But it's his vehicle in both senses, his vehicle to touch base with people. Sort of a precursor to today's bookmobiles. Right, absolutely. And Mifflin goes from farm to farm, as I said, in 1915 or so in the New England area, Connecticut perhaps, and really what he wants to do with these books is get them in other people's hands. Right. He's not out to become a millionaire. He's out to get these books, and and like you said, into people's hands. People who would ordinarily not be exposed to these books. And what better way to do it than a van that in and of itself draws attention? The lettering on the side of the van, and he opens up these flaps to expose the books. I mean, it's a magnet for people. And in his style, his character, he just puts these books out there for people who would ordinarily probably never see them. But also, they're just not any book. These books are handpicked by him, and he wants to take out of their hands books that they're reading that are sold maybe by a different traveling salesman that are just dull and boring and odes to the dead. Is that what they were reading? Well, yeah, let's talk about that. There were collections of funeral orations, which other traveling book salesmen of the time are pushing on their unsuspecting customers. And he would go into these farms and see these 20-volume sets of funeral orations. Right. And, and those would be the only books that the farmhouse had. So he was more interested in getting the parents to value reading and then getting the children to love to read. Uh, you know, Phil, Elizabeth, when we have these kinds of conversations, I really want to stay between the covers of the book. I'm not interested in what the critics have to say. We're really not even interested in what the author says about his book. What's important is what the book said to us and what we got out of it. But because my Greek mythology is not that good, I I did have to go to a dictionary and get a definition for Parnassus. And Phil, I understand you also went for a dictionary definition. Yeah, of course. I had no idea what Parnassus was. In the dictionary, it's a mountain in Greece. And it's also a center of artistic and poetic activity, which is apropos. Right. In fact, in the dictionary, Parnassian is made an adjective, and the definition there is of or relating to poetry, a member of a school of late 19th century French poets whose work is characterized by detachment and an emphasis on metrical form. But I think the real definition, as you said, is it's a mountain in central Greece, north of the Gulf of Corinth, and in ancient times it was sacred to Apollo. Uh, The Delphi Oracle was at the foot of the mountain, and the Greeks would go there to talk to her and look for prophecies. Well, all right, I'm glad we did talk about Parnassus, but it's really not how our novel starts. Elizabeth, the first character we meet is Helen McGill. She's our narrator, and she starts telling us that this is going to be her story. Helen was a single woman in her home, near 40. Yeah, I think she was about 40, that's right. Right, and she was a governess. Her brother came and pulled her out of that so that she wouldn't have to do that anymore. And they bought a farm together, and she took care of the cooking and most of the chores while he was doing sometimes chores and sometimes just leaving for weeks at a time to collect information to write. I thought she was more the main character than the Parnassus, but it was interesting to me that the two of you think the Parnassus is the story. But to me, it's her story because all these things touch her life. Was Helen one of the characters you had some empathy for? No, which is my problem with the book. I guess not seeing Parnassus as the main character, I read it with Helen being the main character, and she was just forgettable. 
she was around all the time and you weren't really worried about what she thought or what she wanted because she was just a fixture. And that's how her brother treated her. Not to be unkind to her, but he just took her presence for granted, took her for granted. Well, Phil, let's talk about her brother, Andrew McGill. He doesn't start out as a writer. He decides to move to this farm to get away from the city life. And he really wants to be a farmer, not even a gentleman farmer. He wants to get his hands dirty. But slowly, over time, he starts writing some articles, eventually becomes a published author, and that's really where the problems occur between him and his sister. He did have a literary background. He was an editor. Uh, Right. I I think at the school newspaper. Correct. It was important to their life that they read. They had a magazine that they subscribed to, Farms. They had several stories in the magazine, and he and Helen would read the stories, and it was important to them. It was in their lives, literature. And he became inspired to convert the hen house to his study. Well, there was actually a defining moment that that spark occurred for him. I I believe an uncle passes away. Right. And both he and Helen receive a truckload of books. Again, living in a farm in New England at the time, they're, they're somewhat isolated. They don't have much on hand, so they have Farm and Fireside magazine. They'll read that, and then, like you said, they get this allotment of books from an uncle. A whole library. Right. And that encourages him and inspires him and he converts the hen house to his study. And the next thing Helen knows is that she's mailing a parcel, which is his manuscript, that he had written a book. And as far as Andrew is concerned, Helen is being taken advantage of. But in the end, he supports her. He becomes a published author, successful, and she's his gatekeeper. She screens out all the other publishers and only accepts the checks that come in from the publisher that he's been dealing with. But he's the successful of the two. Right, and it's that success and the continuing interest that Andrew has in, in reading books and writing books that causes a rift, basically, to develop between him and his sister. Uh, right. She feels put upon staying at home. She's now got to do all the cooking, all the chores. And uh, within the book, she describes the meals that she cooks three times a day. Right. And some of the food and the amount of food that she describes, it's amazing. So, Elizabeth, Phil, now we basically have two of our characters, Andrew and Helen McGill. Andrew is now a successful published writer, and there's this rift growing between the brother and sister. Helen feels even more put upon and uh, really feels she has no life of her own. As you said, she's the custodian or gatekeeper for her brother. And it wasn't the deal she signed on for. She was going on a farm with Andrew. He was working the fields. She was doing the housework. And all of a sudden, he becomes an author, leaves for weeks at a time, and she's left holding the bag. All right. But then one day... Everything changes. Well, in pulls Roger Mifflin with his Parnassus pulled by his white horse to Helen McGill and Andrew McGill's farm. But he's not there to sell them a book, is he? His intent is to sell Andrew the whole kit and caboodle. Parnassus his wagon, the horse, the books, the dog. The dog? Even the dog. Everything to Andrew. He calls him the sage, the sage of Redfield. His intention is that this man, Andrew, will do Parnassus justice. And, of course, Roger McGill has become familiar with Andrew by reading the books that Andrew has written. Right. So when Parnassus pulls up, Mifflin gets out. He introduces himself to Helen, says, I'm here to sell my wagon to Andrew McGill. And how does Helen take that? She panics because she knows that the Parnassus is perfect for him. That's everything that he ever wanted. He already goes away for weeks and weeks at a time to collect more material for his books, and she knows that if he had this wagon that had all his basic necessities on it, including shelves and shelves of books, that he may not come back for years. Who wouldn't? And she thinks, now, you have to leave. He will buy this. You can't stay here. Her only thought is, I've got to get this guy in his wagon and get this wagon out of here before my brother gets home. Right. She knows exactly when to expect him back from town because she's making one of his favorite meals. 
So she has a small window of time where she has to get rid of Mifflin. But I'm going to say, fortunately for Helen, fortunately for Mifflin, and fortunately for Andrew, that does not happen. But before we talk about what does happen, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for this season of Novel Conversations, The Great Courses Plus. There's a sense of pride that comes with being able to talk confidently and intelligently about a subject, and that's why I really like The Great Courses Plus. With this streaming service, we have the freedom to learn more about virtually any topic, and not just get the basics, but truly master it. With the Great Courses Plus app, you can learn unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields, have the flexibility to watch or listen just about anywhere, and have unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics like Shakespeare, great music of the 20th century, even travel photography or Mediterranean cooking. This specific course, Life Lessons from the Great Books, I think you'll particularly enjoy. Professor Rufus Fears draws us into the world of masterpieces like Macbeth, Brave New World, Odyssey, and more, exploring the wisdom that can be gleaned from each story and the many ways it can be applied to any culture or stage of life. This is something we always do with our discussions on novel conversations. So, if you enjoy taking in the wisdom of some of the greatest authors that ever lived, please look into taking this course, Life Lessons from the Great Books, on the Great Courses Plus app. And right now, we have a special limited-time offer for all Nava Conversations listeners. You can get an entire month for free. To start your free month trial, all you have to do is sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash novel. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash novel. So thanks so much for taking the time with me to talk about this great opportunity with The Great Courses Plus. Now let's get back to our discussion on the novel Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. All right, Phil and Elizabeth, when we left off, we had Parnassus, our book wagon, with the owner, Roger Mifflin, at the farm of Helen and Andrew McGill. Helen is slightly panicking as she does not want her brother to run off on this wagon and leave her high and dry and working on the farm. So what's her solution to this problem? Well, first she tried to get him off the property, but he said, I'll go, but I'm just going to wait down the road because I know what direction he's coming from. So she starts to barter with him, and she ends up buying the Parnassus herself in order to keep it from her brother, which brings another host of problems since she has to grab all her things, arrange for the finishing of his meal because it's still cooking, arrange for care of the house, and then she jumps in and she takes off and she travels down the road and leaves. That's right, Elizabeth. She's not just going to buy this wagon. She's buying the entire Parnassus experience. She's going to get the horse, the dog, but she's also going out on the road and she's going to sell these books. She has to. If she doesn't keep this Parnassus away from her brother, she knows that he'll take it. So it leads her to this extreme move. But I think the motivation in the beginning is that she's a classic gatekeeper. She's keeping this away from her brother. And then we'll see gradually how she buys into it and decides, I can do this. All right, well, let's talk about how her motivations change. As Elizabeth said, she basically jumps in the wagon and heads on down the road with Roger Mifflin. And his dog. And his dog. (laughs) They stop at a few farms, and she watches and observes how Roger Mifflin sells these books, talks to the farmers, talks to the tradespeople, goes into the farmhouse and sees, as we mentioned before, that all these farmhouses have these collections of funeral orations or other topics that they're just not going to read. Were you surprised at all with the ease that Helen just basically jumps into a wagon and heads on down the road? No, because Roger is such a powerful character. He's a classic salesman, and he sells Helen, he sells the farmers, he sells them all, because he's so convinced that he's doing the right thing, and she buys into it. I bought into it. I mean, he's very convincing. (laughs) He he is. He's great at persuasion, and she buys right into it. 
And really, this is where the story changes, at least for me. It starts out, it seems almost idealistic. Who wouldn't want to, uh, I mean, I know I would, get into a van and spend the summer riding around, selling books, talking to people about books. But as their journey begins, things start to change. And for me, it was really strange. I expected one kind of novel, and the next thing I know, I'm in an adventure novel. And then, I don't want to give too much away, but by the end of the book, I was in a love story. Phil, what does occur on the road that changes our little idyllic story into more of an an adventure at this point? Well, I guess the first thing is that Roger tells Helen that he will he'll stay on for a day. She'll get him to a time where he can get a train back to Brooklyn. His intent is to write a book. Yes, actually, tell me a little bit more about Roger. I forgot to bring up his motivation. Why does he want to sell Parnassus? Well, Roger, after making a name for himself in the New England area, wants to go back to Brooklyn to his brother's house and write his book. He has the great American novel in his head, and he needs to get it out. In order to do that, he has to get away from Parnassus, which has been his life for years. So he promises Helen he'll take her on the road, show her the ropes, get her started, but then she's got to drop him off at a train station so he can get back to Brooklyn. Correct. And, and how does that work out? Well, he leaves. But I think it's a hard decision for Roger to make. He leaves Helen with a wagon with the books, but he follows her. It's too much information to train her in one day, um, from how they price the books to how they talk to the farmers. And also remember that before actually selling the books, he always wants to make sure that the book he sells fits the needs of the family. And he really educates them on different choices of what to read, and he makes sure that they're able to understand the book. But that's salesmanship. He goes in and surmises what the need is and then fills it. But there was a point where someone wanted a particular book and he wouldn't sell them that particular book. Isn't that correct? Right. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. He refused to get one of his best customers a Shakespeare because he didn't think he was ready. But again, that's the mark of a good salesman. He could assess his customer, give them what they want, and that leads them to want more. You're not ready for it now. Maybe next time. I'll give you this book now. Absolutely. And then I'll come back and I'll sell you another one later. I've seen guys like this. I've seen Rogers. I've met Rogers, who are great salesmen who can assess a situation, fill needs, have them hang on to his every word, and have them want him to come back. Right. And as we've said, it's really not about money for Roger Mifflin. He wants to get the right book into the right people's hands. He does want to make a couple dollars, but for him, it's about making readers. He really only wants to make enough to keep going. To get by. But nonetheless, just by his experience, by having to do this all the time, makes him a great salesman, makes him a great craftsman at talking to people, having conversations, assessing needs and filling those needs. He's a classic salesman. And Elizabeth, as you said, this is not anything he can teach Helen in one day or even in two days. No. So when he finally does send her out on his own, even he's not sure she can handle the job. So, Phil, as you said, he follows her for another day or two, and that's really when our story changes. Right. And this is where it becomes an adventure. She gets lost in a storm and drives off the main road, and she's going towards a quarry. Her horse throws a shoe. She's on a rough road, and she ends up camping, unbeknownst to her, near a quarry that is home to some hobos in the area. And that's where the adventure begins. 
Right, we're in the middle of the night, we're in the middle of a rainstorm, all of a sudden the dog starts barking. And she can hear a scuffle, and she actually listens to a fight. And you learn later that the fight is Roger coming back and beating up the hobos and chasing them away from the Parnassus. But they do run into even more trouble. Mifflin is able to scare off the first hobo or two, but then as Roger and Helen go down a road to find the shoe for the horse and come back, lo and behold, Parnassus is gone. They follow the tracks of the horse and they find their Parnassus in the middle of this gang of hobos. And they're having breakfast with all of these stores from the wagon. But then while Helen and Roger are watching these hobos devour their breakfast, they're surprised by another hobo. And now, into our idyllic little story, a gun appears. Right. As the hobo with the gun is picking up Roger, it's Helen who helps to disarm this hobo, and Roger gets the gun away from him, marches this hobo down to the group of other hobos, and scares a lot of them off at gunpoint. And actually, there's a great little passage in the book where Helen describes exactly what happens to the ruffian who got the gun on Roger. It's Helen who springs to action. She says, He bent over as if to grab Mifflin by the neck. I saw my chance and jumped on him from behind. I am heavy, as I have said, and he sprawled on the ground. My doubts as to the pistol being loaded were promptly dissolved, for it went off like a cannon. No one was in front of it, however, and Mifflin was on his feet like a flash. He had the ruffian by the throat and kicked the weapon out of his hand as I ran to seize it. So really now we've got an adventure story. There's guns, there's hobos, there's danger. There's fighting. This story is rapidly changing, as I intimated before. And eventually, it will turn into another story, a love story. And we missed the whole section where Andrew comes to get her. Well, tell me about that. Andrew has found out that she's run off with a traveling book salesman. (laughs) And he starts to track her down. And for propriety's sake, she's sleeping overnight at inns. And he is calling to see if he can find her. Has she been here? He's tracking her down. And they're in the middle of the road, and he comes upon them, and there's another fight. And this time it's between Roger and Andrew. Right, because Andrew thinks that she's being taken advantage of. He's sure that she's not in her right mind, and he needs her to come back, and she refuses. Andrew sees his world crumbling. Right, his gatekeeper's gone. Right. Not only his gatekeeper gone, his cook is gone. (laughs) Oh, no. He finds out that what he had taken for granted is his whole world, and he's going out to bring her back. And that's what will lead us into the next adventure with Roger, is that Andrew, even having lost the fight to Roger, still continues on his quest to get Helen back, and will convince the bank that Helen's check was bad, that she's been deceived, and that, ultimately, gets Roger put in jail. Exactly. Roger ends up in jail. Helen thinks she's put him on a train heading to Brooklyn, but he's in jail. She does eventually find that out, and she does go and rescues him. Right. And that's when a romance starts to bud as Helen goes back for her man. You know, again, as I've said before, the adventure part of the story caught me by surprise, and then all of a sudden the love story caught me by surprise. Helen quickly realizes that she's in love with Roger, makes her emotions known, Roger asks her to marry him, and now we've got a love story. It's not the story I started out reading. Right. And again, as far as Helen's concerned, Helen's a woman of chance opportunity. Here comes Parnassus. It's a chance. She takes it. And now she's found herself in something that she's suited for. And here again meets another guy. Here's a spinster, at the time a spinster of 39, takes another chance. Here, there's an eligible bachelor, enjoys his company, and falls in love with him. So two opportunities for Helen, and she's taking advantage of both of them. Okay, as we've discussed, the story has some adventure, it has some romance. But, you know, I want to get back to the book that I thought I was reading, the original story. And I want to talk about some of the books that are on this van. This book, Parnassus on Wheels, is full of references to other books. Certainly only books written before 1915 or so, you know, the time of our novel. 
But there's author after author mentioned, book after book mentioned. Elizabeth, as you said, he's already mentioned Shakespeare. And Robinson Crusoe, Little Women. Exactly. And Robert Louis Stevenson gets mentioned. Uh, One real interesting passage that comes to my mind right now is actually right after this little adventure with the hobos and the gun. They mentioned Don Quixote. Uh, I think drawing a parallel between some of the actions of Roger towards Helen and the character uh, of Don Quixote. And even the Greek reference to Parnassus itself. He mentions Apollo when he's fighting with the hobos. It's chock full of these references. The only thing is, he really doesn't have any very good feelings towards the publishers of these novels, does he? Because Roger, again, his intent is not to become a millionaire. His intent is to get books in the hands of people who wouldn't ordinarily have them. Publishers, meanwhile, have set price guides when they're selling their books. And Roger sells them for a fraction of that. And he also prices them by merit. If there's an expensive book and he feels that it's not a fantastic book, then he'll price it down. Again, back to his bookselling ability. That's a great example of that, because not only does he filter out books that are inappropriate for certain customers, if a book is, say, in his judgment, bad, maybe he'll give him a bargain on that one if he sells it at all. Well, Phil, perhaps the most interesting uh, literary allusion for me was to uh, Boccaccio's Decameron. He names the dog after the author. The publisher of Andrew's books is Cameron and Jones. I'm only somewhat familiar with that work. It's basically an Italian version of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It's the tales of ten travelers. Phil, do you have any more familiarity with the the Decameron? No. As a matter of fact, uh, most of the references made in this book were a little over my head. But not the references to bookselling. Mm -mm. Those you had. Mm Mm-hmm. So, guys, what I'd like from you now is perhaps a favorite moment in the book or a favorite line or quote that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, Phil, what have you got for us? Hmm. Well, I think one of the best parts in the book is when Helen is in the back of the wagon while Roger is pulling into a small town called Greenbrier. The wagon itself draws attention, so people come around the wagon. Meanwhile, Helen is inside sleeping. She wakes up to the sound of Roger at his craft. He throws open the flaps, exposing the books to the people. They come around, and she has the opportunity to see him at his best, selling books, talking to people. He's a likable character. He's a likable personality, and he draws people in. And the books speak for themselves. Well, but it's not only the books that speak for themselves. Roger is a likable character, and he makes the books likable as well. Oh, absolutely. Again, he's filling this need. He brings these people, and he lets them talk. He listens to them. He talks to them. And Helen gets to see this kind of detached, apart. She's watching from the background. I think one of the best things when Roger says, the man that's got a few good books on his shelf is making his wife happy, giving his children a square deal, and he's likely to be a better citizen himself. How about that, Parson? I mean, this is a great salesman right there. He's romancing these books. It's everything to him, and he wants it to be everything for them. Elizabeth, do you have a moment or a line that you want to share with us? I thought the letter that she left for her brother when she initially left the house was interesting. Uh, She wrote, Dear Andrew, don't be thinking I'm crazy. I've gone off on an adventure. It just came over me that you've had all the adventures while I've been at home baking bread. Mrs. McNally will look after your meals, and one of her girls can come over to do the housework. So don't worry. I'm going off for a little while, maybe a month, to see some of the happiness and hayseed of yours. It's what the magazines call the revolt of womanhood. Warm underwear is in the cedar chest in the spare room when you need it. With love, Helen. I thought it was funny that even though she is revolting against her life, she's still telling him where to find the warm underwear. (laughs) Very good. For me, a big part of the enjoyment of of this book was the references to other works, to other authors. But there are a couple of lines here that I would like to read. At one point, Helen is reading something that Roger Mifflin wrote. 
There are three ingredients in the good life, learning, earning, and yearning. A man should be learning as he goes, and he should be earning bread for himself and others. And he should be yearning, too, yearning to know the unknowable. And that's part of why we have these novel conversations, so that we can learn and we yearn to know the unknowable. One of the other parts that I really enjoyed, uh, someone asked Roger Mifflin, they call him the professor, what do you mean by a great book? And the fact that he's called the professor, I think, is interesting. Um, he goes from town to town. He is known by his craft, but he's also known as the professor. And by giving him that title, they show that they appreciate him. Right. For many of these farmers, that's the highest title they can give someone. Absolutely. But here's what the professor defines as a good book or as a great book. A good book ought to have something simple about it. And like Eve, it ought to come from somewhere near the third rib. There ought to be a heart beating in it. A story that's all forehead doesn't amount to much. And I think that's true. There needs to be some heart. And there was some heart in this book. That's the part that surprised me. I thought it was going to be a book about a guy who loves to sell books. He goes door to door. But this little story, this sweet little story, had a heart in it and becomes, as I said, a romance, becomes an adventure, becomes quite a different story. All right, with those lines, let me ask you, Phil, and you, Elizabeth, if you had a Parnassus today, give me two or three titles that would be on your Parnassus. Elizabeth? Well, I would definitely have uh, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Those have been two of my favorite books. Um, I, you know, I first read them when I was six years old, actually. So they've been some of my favorite books Great since stories. I was a kid. Great stories. And then I'd definitely have some Charles Dickens books in there. He's one of my favorite authors as well. And Phil, what would be on your Parnassus? Probably my favorite book of all time is called Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins. It's an amazing, deep, and insightful book. Very crazy, very out there, and really pretty much anything by Kurt Vonnegut. I'd have to tell you, my Parnassus would have the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, um, basically a what you might call a primer on Stoic philosophy. It's a book that every time I read, I get something out of it. I would also have to include Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. For me, that is the quintessential first great American novel. And then, like you, I think I would want some nonfiction, maybe a couple of history books, something to keep me company on those long nights out on the road with our Parnassus. Uh, Phil, Elizabeth, that ends our conversation today on the novel Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. I want to again thank you both for coming out and having this conversation with me today. I hope it was an enjoyable experience. Thanks for having us. I really enjoyed being here. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. All right, great. I'm glad you did. Once again, I want to thank my readers, Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. For more information about upcoming Novel Conversations, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to our website at thefrontporchpeople.com. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. A special thanks to producer Julie Fink, audio engineers Sean Ruhlhoffman, Eric Coltnow, and Dave Douglas and executive producer, Joan Andrews. We'd also like to thank our researchers, Mike and Tina Kovac. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.